Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. Hello, welcome to Crossing the Chasm, our diversity, equity, and inclusion podcast focused on healthcare. In this episode, we're going to take our initial, but certainly not last, approach commenting on, addressing, uh, and asking questions regarding health equity, health inequity, health disparities. It comes in all variety of topics, but I think the most important framework we have to have is first a universal definition of what we mean. And for that, I would certainly want to set the table in understanding how we're defining health equity as well as health inequality. The World Health Organization defines health equity as the absence of unfair, avoidable, or remediable differences in health among population groups, defined by social, economic, demographic, or geographic characteristics. Health inequalities are measurable differences in health across population subgroups. In this episode, we're going to explore an area that doesn't typically get a lot of publicity because it's challenging, not only societally, but clinically, and that is the area of mental health. When we're addressing health disparities as well as mental health, we have to understand that they're not simply clinical outcomes that are a result of this, but societal ones as well. And so I'm grateful to be joined by an expert in mental health, a psychiatrist, as well as an individual who is committed to eliminating healthcare disparities in her own way. So join me as we delve directly into this episode on mental health equity. Today, we are joined by Dr. Marquita Wills. I'm super excited to see her again. Uh, It's been a long time since we have been in person, but uh, Dr. Wills and I have known each other and worked together a long time ago. I won't date either one of us, Uh, (laughs) but, um, uh, and she's certainly uh, currently the the chief medical officer for the Johns Hopkins Healthcare LLC, which is the managed care arm of that system. Welcome, Marquita. Super happy to have you here. Thank you very much. Super excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, again, uh, just super glad that you could make the time. I know that you are off doing um, keynote spe- uh, discussions as well as um, obviously running a pretty uh, large and successful um, uh, managed care practice. So I will jump into this first, that our first question is routinely, just tell us a little bit about your story. Part of what we do in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion is to make sure that we're sharing people's stories because um, that helps people to connect. So I would love to hear your story about how you got where you are in healthcare. Start where well, you are. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, I, I, I'm going to start by saying I did not want to be a doctor. Let me just start by saying that. I'm so glad I am. I'm very glad I am. But I did not want to be a doctor. My, I was good in math and science, and so my parents were like, you're going to medical school. So I was kind of brainwashed and programmed into going to medical school my entire life. And so I said, okay, fine, I'll go to medical school. Let's check the box. I'm dating myself here. Um, at 22, I said, okay, fine, I'll go to medical school, but I'm going to pick one um, that has another program so I can get a joint degree in something I really want to do. 
And that's why I chose the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. At the time, it was the only MD, MBA program in the country. And I was like, I'm going to Wharton, I'm getting my MBA, and I'm going to somehow do the business of medicine. I don't know what that looks like. I don't even know what that means, but that's what at 22 I decided I wanted to do. Um, and I didn't think I would do a residency, didn't think I would do a residency, uh, but life takes its twists and turns. Um, at the end of the day, I found psychiatry, ended up doing a, a, a residency in psychiatry at MGH. I also didn't do the combined degree program I actually did it in two separate times. I did uh, a medical school at Penn, moved up to Boston, went and did my residency, came back down to Philly, and went and got my MBA in healthcare and management. So it wasn't exactly how I had planned at all. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm very glad that I am a physician. I'm very glad that I did do a residency. And I'm very proud of myself for getting that MBA, even though my dad was like, what are you doing that for? Um, and, um, and, and crafting a career right at the intersection of medicine and management um, for the past 20 plus years. Um, right after B school, I was at McKinsey for three years. I'm a McKinsey alum and was there in their payer provider practice. Um, and then that's when I met you after I left McKinsey um, and did hospital administration for a short period of time um, and ultimately ended up on the payer, payer side which was a little bit of a surprise for me, um, but I found that I really, really love and enjoy that population health scale. Um, and then also get to use those business skills that somehow at 22, I knew I wanted and now I'm putting them to good use. So um, that's a little bit about my story. I do still practice. I practice uh, psychiatry uh, about four hours a week. Um, and then the rest of my time is helping to lead the health plan as part of the Johns Hopkins system um, in Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah, the, you. every time you share that story, I go, I, so she sleeps when? <laughs> I don't really have a sense of when she figured out at 22 that she didn't want to sleep. Um, she just wanted <laughs> to do a lot of cool stuff all at the same time. So. <laughs> yes, and I'm still struggling with that sleep thing, but sleep actually, I gotta, I gotta slip this in. Sleep is definitely one of the six lifestyle medicine pillars, whole food, plant-based nutrition, uh, sleep, avoiding risky substances, um, all uh, meditation and mindfulness, exercise. There's one more that I'm missing, um, but those are like the bedrocks and things that I try to embed into, you talk about the plan world, that prevention and um, a, a population health scale. Uh, and so I, I try to practice what I preach and I do try to get sleep, my eight hours of sleep every night. <laughs> good for you, good for you. Uh, and and, and the, the rest of the time is a bunch of amazing work. So th um, thank you for that. And you really led into what our topic is today. And you, you when I asked you to do this podcast and you were just like, if you're gonna talk about health equity at all, we have to talk about it with respect to mental health because you know, there's the disparities in health equity and then the disparities in mental health equity is something even different. And so why don't you just start by framing that up? Because uh, I know when I look through your talk and you and I go to, this, to the same place, which is uh, unequal treatment, but you, you, we're, we're both very well, well versed in that. But tell us a little bit, uh, tell certainly the audience for those who are less aware about it, what is mental health equity? How do you define it? What do you look at it? And and give us a little bit of background on it. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, mental health equity is it encompasses a lot. At the end of the day, the definition around health equity is making sure that every single last person has access um, to the same set of resources in order to improve their health. Um, and um, from what we know about uh, clinical medicine, I think a lot of people, a lot of us have known it for the, for our lifetimes. I think some people just became aware of it during the pandemic, right. uh, but a lot of us have been talking about this for the last 20, 30 years. Um, uh, one of the things that we know is that in the mental health field, because of in general, um, the criminalization of mental health period, um, and then you add the racial component over top of it, uh, there is a lot of disparities that happen. As a matter of fact, our, our prisons and jails end up being one of the largest providers of mental health care in our nation. Um, and there's a disproportionate number of people that are being treated for mental health conditions in prisons and jails who are of color. Um, and so I think it's really interesting to untangle all of the social factors that go in from somebody having a, a psychotic episode in their community. If someone's having a psychotic episode in their community and they live in a low resource zip code, chances are that person's going to jail. If somebody's having that same similar episode in a, a high resource community, chances are that person's going to emergency room. So depending on the community response to various things, we've got disparities baked in at almost every level. Um, and so, you know, those are some of the, diagnostically, those things happen as well. Someone with the same symptoms who's of color, uh, who's displaying psychosis, is more likely to be considered schizophrenic versus bipolar. We have those researched papers that were documented 20, 30 years ago when people started first looking at disparities within mental health. Um, and so some of that is about systems of care and communities and how communities respond. Um, some of it is about individual bias that happens in the doctor-patient interaction. Um, some of it is about uh, just the stigma of mental health, period, um, and where how it ends up playing out in our nation. Um, and so all those complex factors, I think social determinants of health, uh, complex factors come together uh, particularly, another big example of that is our substance use issues, um, which fall under the behavioral health spectrum. As we know, back in the 80s, uh, you know, crack was criminalized in a way that powder cocaine was not, right. which led to a whole, again, criminalization of communities uh, mass incarceration, et cetera. So all that ties in and plays into a lot of the disparities in health equity that we find uh, in the mental health space that are a little bit different than how we think about it in the in the in the physical health world. Um, so you get into your social factors uh, and your social determinants of health a lot more quickly than you hey, you know mental physical health you get into it quick too. Um, but you got to dive right in on the mental health side, just given how our nation has, I would say, almost little to no mental health care infrastructure, safety net wise for our communities. 
Well, we know that's been in existence for decades. And uh, you mentioned going back into the 80s and, and uh, that specific uncoupling of, or lack of financial support for a, a number of mental health resources. Uh, as you were discussing the criminalization piece, I, I kept thinking, you know, there is a lot of uh, conversations, certainly within the the very heterogeneous black community about the state, you mentioned the stigma of mental health. And as you were discussing the, the criminalization of it and highlighted the disparities, I immediately, my, my brain thought, I was like, it's the, maybe not the first time, but it was making the connection of, wow, yeah, don't call somebody crazy. Certainly don't call them, because quite honestly, you may be putting them in a jail cell. That's um, right. And That's right. what what kind of impact that is in terms of even the individual families making the choice to access mental health resources because I'm just worried that you're it's not going to get treated. <laughs> it's, well, it's and, and, and that 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 definitely comes up when we're talking about in particular children because if children are having difficulties and the social services system is accessed. That's the first thing that folks are worried about is that their kids are going to get taken away. And so a lot of times you end up covering up um, and the community ends up bearing the burden of some of these issues. Uh, and remember, you got to then add on trauma in these communities as well. Uh, because many of these impoverished communities, the kids are going to be exposed to adverse childhood events. Uh, and so we know that that plays in. They're going to have maybe witnessed shootings or been been involved in shootings. And the community almost feels like they have nowhere to turn. And so, you know, I think when we think about many of the urban issues, using a trauma lens is an important way of restoring empathy um, for those communities that so oftentimes get um, sort of chastised or met with disdain because of some of the, the frustra frustrating social ills I think that we all end up facing. Um, but it didn't happen overnight, right? right? This is all things that built up. And I think that's one of the exciting things about the health equity movement is that people are looking at some of the historical pieces that contributed. And if we are able to talk articulately about them in an open, honest way, um, I know that we all collectively can figure out solutions going forward for how we undo some of these things that happened, you know, um, th that happened. I yes. Know that well, that happened, and quite honestly, and are still happening. Maybe to a lesser degree, but they're still happening, and they're yes. still creating the trauma that you, you highlighted. I found really interesting the concept that you, you brought up because I think it's, you know, in, in speaking to uh, individuals who are either less educated or still have questions about health equity concerns. It's melding sort of the social science com components with the hard science. And one of the things that you hi highlighted was trauma aspect and the transgenerational trauma component that goes along with that. Do you mind explaining to, to folks what transgenerational trauma uh, implies and how that feeds into really 
health globally, uh, you know, but mental health specifically? I would be happy to, and I think this is a very important concept, transgenerational trauma. There's a term out there that scientists are using these days called epigenetics. And it, it's an interesting term. It's basically, how is it that information from your uh, forefathers, really from your ancestors, gets passed down to you today? How does that happen? And, you know, we, 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 we in science know enough about DNA to know that DNA, part of it comes from your mom, part of it comes from your dad, it comes together, it forms you, and then you grow in the womb. Um, and, but what they're talking about now is on top of those just sort of hard-coded genetic factors that are encoded into the DNA is how behavior, environment, and exposure can be transmitted down through your DNA as well. And so it can affect how your genes work or express yourself, express themselves. And so you may not even know it, but you may have been literally passed down in your genetic code information about trauma that you're not even aware of. And, and, and so there's, there, there, there's this concept of trauma being literally transmitted, not only behaviorally, not only through how your parents act and how they treat you and what family norms get passed down to you, but in addition to that, also in your DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and so you may be, emerge onto the earth with this, complex transgenerational trauma that then manifests and gets played out in your life. And it may have happened a couple of generations back. Now, a lot of this is theoretical, um, but there are a lot of uh, researchers who are looking very closely at epigenetics to think about how this may uh, be an interesting way to think about how we um, uh, approach care for the here and now is thinking about it in its historical, uh, transgenerational context. Um, and so some of the things that you may be seeing in folks who may have complex uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, maybe difficulty regulating emotions, challenging relationships and trust, distorted perceptions, um, loss of a system of meaning, loss in core beliefs, loss in value of life, loss in faith, loss in hope, that may have been trans transmitted down to you genetically due to traumas that have happened in the past for people you don't even know that then get reflected and amplified back into your experience today. And so it's just a fascinating construct to think about um, and to think about, you know, as we, you know, as we think about systemic changes on how we care for communities of color, uh, vulnerable, marginalized communities, uh, and what that means when you've got that person sitting in the room with you face to face, and how you think about unpacking uh, that trauma. So it's it's an interesting concept, and a lot of folks are thinking about that uh, uh, these days. It, it would seem, uh, particularly looking at it from the clinical lens, that the emphasis on cultural competency you know, I know that's been 
a resurrected sort of catchphrase uh, these days, particularly with respect to training. But I think it re-emphasizes that it's beyond the catchphrase that quite honestly, not having those considerations, not, you know, taking into account background, family history. You know, we, we talk about family history and in, in medicine all the time, but you know, is it something that you fill out in your H&P <laughs> or is it something that you're actually exploring in terms of its impact on the person that's sitting in front of you, whether in a, in a hospital bed for me or, um, in, you know, in your, your, your clinic setting? Although I, I assume you're in a clinic setting, you could be in the hospital too, I don't know. <laughs> I am, it's a clinic setting, it's a clinic setting. <laughs> wow, well, so I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, you highlighted, and again, going through a number of aspects of your talk was just, again, delving into mental health disparities themselves. Are there a couple of key points that you could share with us? You know, one of the things certainly on the physical health disparities is, and, and obviously most of the literature has been focused on black versus white um, in, in terms of uh, the data, but um, I, I'm less familiar with what's out there in the mental health world. What are there specific areas? You mentioned a couple in terms of diagnosis of schizophrenia versus bipolar. Are there other areas that are that are notable disparities in mental health that are similar to what we see in physical health um, or or different? You you know, one of the things that was frequently discussed is, and I am leaning towards your payer side eventually, but mm -hmm. the number of people who have. Uh, um, uh, health insurance um, that cover mental health benefits. Are there things like that that you could share with uh, with me and, and the audience? Yes, there are. There are. So generally speaking, um, we believe, the scientific community believes that the rates of mental illness in various populations are the same. Um, there's the feeling that, you know, uh, about the same number of folks get depression no matter what their race is, about the same number of folks get bi have bipolar disorder no matter what their race is. Um, but where we really see the disparities happening is on the access side, and it's multifactorial. So really only one in three, for example, Black Americans who need mental health care receive it. Some of that is access. Some of that is mistrust. Uh, some of that is, um, uh, as we talked about, fear. Um, uh, and so there is the feeling that uh, oftentimes uh, racially marginalized communities are receiving a poor quality of care um, and lacks, lack of access to, in particular, culturally affirming care, right? Care that takes into account who they are in a 3D way. Um, so. But we also know that compared with whites, I think we see this in the uh, literature. I saw some recent results, you know, um, in, in, in the literature on the COVID side um, uh, that uh, Blacks and Hispanics, Latinx folks were, Black and Brown folks were getting, you know, about a third uh, the prescription of Paxlovid uh, than, than white folks for COVID even now. Um, and that's multifactorial, right? Like that's going to be, um, you know, insurance and, and all sorts of things, access, what your doctor prescribes for you when you go in, depending on what symptoms you have, et cetera. And, and similarly, we see that in the mental health space as well, that uh, uh, folks of color are less likely to receive guideline consistent care. 
Um, they're less frequently included in research. Um, they're more likely to use the emergency room setting rather than primary care for uh, to access mental health specialists. Um, and so they're even more less likely, folks of color are less likely to even be offered medication or psychotherapy. Um, there's a bias and a belief, or it, it was long embedded, that counseling didn't work for people of color, that it wasn't uh, appropriate for people of color. That was some historically, um, and I think there's some legacy to that. I do also think there's some culture piece to that too, though. I do, like we talked about before, um, given a lot of the historical injustices uh, that folks have faced, they're not very likely to go in and start telling people all their business, you know, for fear that it could be quote unquote used against them. So there's a, 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 a self-preservation aspect to why that one might not want to divulge in psychotherapy. Um, but then there's also, uh, you know, this uh, a lack of providers um, that might be able to bridge those gaps who look like the patient um, and so, uh, you know, all around, we're thinking um, that these are some of the things that are uh, driving some of the disparities in care. We talked about the misdiagnosis between schizophrenia and mood disorder, um, and uh, uh, um, also uh, being offered uh, medication for uh, depression as well. Uh, and I think another one that came up many years ago was um, the idea that folks who had an agitated depression, because there is an agitated depression, yeah. were often thought to be sort of angry, snapping, and it was seen more as personality right. rather than what it was, was a, a culturally tailored expression of mood. So, right. you know, somebody's snapping off at people and mad and that all the time. Well, that person may be depressed, um, but it might just be thought of as, you know, consistent with certain cultural stereotypes and norms. Um, so it, there's a lot to it, especially because unlike many fields of, of, of medicine, um, you know, there's no blood test to right. say that somebody's got bipolar disorder. There's no blood test to say somebody's got depression. A lot of those, a lot of those uh, 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 diagnoses are made from a very uh, phenomenologic perspective, meaning taking a look at the symptoms and classifying them up against the DSM-5, Diagnostic Statistical Manual uh, version five is what's being produced by the APA, American Psychiatric Association, as sort of the, the holy grail of how we diagnose. So I, I think because there's all those gray areas, um, you know, it's just really important that clinicians and researchers um, of color are, 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 are at the table when right. some of these diagnostic criteria are being developed. And, and, and recently, throughout the whole pandemic and throughout, after all that happened, both the American Psychiatric Association and the American Psychological Association issued very strong public statements and apologies against the role that they had, historically speaking, in the perpetuation of uh, racist uh, ideology in diagnosis. Um, and so I, I'm very appreciative and grateful for those very strong statements that, that came out uh, because I think 
even in the past, there were things like being a runaway slave was supposedly a psychiatric disorder. Right. It was classified as a psychiatric disorder to run away from your master. So if 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 that kind of distortion was happening in medicine, you know, fast forward, it it it, it happened in other areas. It happens currently. One where we're we're working through that as a society is if with regards to uh, transgenderism, yeah. where uh, it it had been hitherto classified as a psychiatric disorder. We're now going back and taking that out of that language. And so, you know, it's one of those things where this, in, in some, there are science aspects to psychiatry, there are social science aspects right. to psychiatry, there are science aspects to physical health medicine, there are social science aspects to physical health medicine. And so looking at things in a, a historical context helps to sort of unpack all of that. So those are some of those examples. Uh, fabulous examples, and I, I think that I was struck by two particular areas that you discussed. One, I got I, my brain completely got stuck on, which was you can't prescribe, you can't counsel, so you do what? And then I, and then my brain went, you go to jail, yeah. and I was sitting there going, yeah, I. I mean, what a nightmare in terms of, of again, sort of, I, I know what my own physical reaction to that was, which was, geez, there has to be something, you know, and we're absolutely going to get into solutions and where things go forward in terms of helping to heal some of these, the apology being one of them. Um, the apology struck me as one of the second things to really focus on because, you know, I, I think somebody asked me, it was just like, well, when you're addressing health equity, you know, what do we do? Because I, I don't want to feel bad about stuff that I may or may not have been done. And I was just like, look, there's global complicity in this problem. You've said it, it your mental health has been documented for a minimum, at minimum 40, 50 years, physical medicine, we're talking about 60 plus years. And there's literature that says that yes, even uh, even clinicians of color had bought into the system and were were still part of that. So it's not about blame game. It's about yes. own it. Yes. And now fix it. That's right. Uh, That's so. right. <laughs> Have the tough conversations. We all collectively look ourselves in the mirror. No one has to feel guilty about that. You know, we let the guilt part go. Um, and all work together to say, okay, how how do we create solutions here? How do we create solutions? Well, let's talk about solutions. Uh, and I know that there is the, you know, I we would love to prescribe one medication <laughs> that would fix everything and have the pill that does that. But you mentioned things like culturally affirming care, which is a beginning. You mentioned, I know it's an area that is near and dear to my heart, which is changing the demographic dynamic of the of the clinicians delivering care which is in and of itself its own the podcast it's its own book <laughs> but, um, but tell me about some of your thoughts in terms of key steps that um, we'd want to see um, in, in terms of steps to again rectify what uh, and and eventually eliminate um, disparities in mental health well, one of the things that I'm really bullish on right now is this aspect of 
thinking about mental health as a public health phenomenon. Um, and I don't know that we always do that. Um, I think we think of mental health in a very individualistic way, but if we take that big macro step back, we have a lot of homeless issues related to uh, mental health, about 30 to 40% of folks um, who are undomiciled have a mental health condition. We talk, already talked about prisons and jails. Um, and so we start thinking about how do we think about the overall wellness of our communities in advance of the emergence of uh, mental health symptomatology. So one of the things that I'm super excited about is thinking about social and emotional learning, um, as well as mind-body medicine. Um, and thinking about how do we embed that into our communities? Um, so whether that be in schools, in WISE, in after-school programs, in projects, in uh, barbershops, in beauty salons, in churches, how do we begin to think about accessing uh, uh, yoga, which is a, a wonderful practice, both for mind and body, uh, meditation, um, and, and all these things, if we're doing it right and learning it right, are free and protective um, and can help uh, strengthen community um, in new and different ways. And so I, I think uh, that is one of the things that I'm most excited about because it, 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 it has the ability to, to truly um, protect communities, these vulnerable communities um, in different ways, uh, borrowing from uh, Eastern medicine and philosophies um, and so I've seen some great programs uh, that have been rolled out in uh, Baltimore City Schools where uh, kids are learning tools around mental health by uh, embedding yoga into the program. And these are, you know, in tough communities, at-risk communities. Um, and these kids are doing very well in terms of behaviors around uh, suspension, detention, skipping school, just being grounded into themselves and having the tools uh, to deal with the traumas that may be going on in their community. So, uh, you know, uh, as we, I know you believe this, I know you're, you're a hospitalist, but we all know prevention is worth, it is. Uh, you know, a pound of cure. Um, and so thinking about how we give people the tools to, to respond to some of the, the traumas that may be happening so they can not only be just surviving in these communities, but thriving. And, and that happens in schools as well, where, uh, you know, kids are being taught how to deep breathe and uh, slow their breath and those sorts of things. So that's something that I am very excited about, in addition to workforce pipelining, um, et cetera. The one thing that I will say that I am super excited about, I went last year to a program for high school teens. This is on the workforce pipeline issue. And about half of the people in there said that they wanted to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Uh, mental health has gotten to be 
for the first time ever, thanks to the pandemic, kind of cool. I mean, I even remember I used to tell people I was a psychiatrist, and people would just like run away from me and be like, I need to hide that. When I was single and dating, I'd be like, I didn't want to tell anybody I was a psychiatrist. It, you know, it's like a, a big X or a scarlet letter. But now it's kind of a cool thing. And so I'm ex excited that mental health is finally getting its shine. And it makes me very optimistic for those pipeline workforce issues that we were talking about earlier. That's across the board, but certainly for folks of color as well. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about, um, you know, that being part of, uh, of, of the solution. I also think uh, there's some exciting collaborative models, and this is where we get into the, the, the managed care part. And this is something that I am very, very passionate about. So there's mind, body, medicine. And then the other part of that is just physical, mental co-location um, of, of services. And so that just helps debunk the stigma. Um, and so you've got, you know, within primary care practices or FQHCs, you've got somebody right down the hall that you can just be able to run down and go see them. Um, and, and vice versa for folks who have severe, who are severely mental ill and they're in um, uh, community mental health centers, um, they can um, be seen by a, 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 a physical health doc there. And so I think the more that we integrate care, that's gonna be an important aspect of how we um, uh, take care of our communities. Uh, I think technology has a role to play in the solution. Um, I think there are a lot, there's been an explosion of behavioral health solutions and just about everybody these days has access to uh, Wi-Fi at either their library, McDonald's, Starbucks, um, and maybe through their minutes and plans. I think some insurance companies are offering that as well. And there are a lot of self-guided uh, 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 tools available for, uh, you know, electronic uh, cognitive behavioral therapy modules, et cetera. So I'm actually very optimistic um, about uh, the future of mental health in general, um, and then also on the health equity side. Um, this is a watershed moment, I think, for our nation and how we're thinking about uh, mental health. Uh, having conversations about it. I think young people talk about it in a, in a way openly that we just didn't um, yeah. when we were growing up. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm very excited about uh, what's to come. Dr. Well, Wills, so this, is, uh, this is Jay, this is uh, Greg's producer. And just I kind of following up a little bit on that, I, I was curious, I used to be a teacher, so I was in schools that did restorative justice and had mindfulness classes and, and I've seen those things. Um, but I was just kind of curious, taking even one step further back, like, is there anything you would say for, you know, parents, for friends, aunts and uncles, things that, that they could do, people that aren't leaders, whether in schools or in healthcare, but just for like the average day person, like what, is there any, any thoughts or direction you can give of, of what they could be doing to help kind of move the needle, if you will, to, to really bring healthcare more? I love that question. I love that question. One of my favorite, absolute favorite programs on the in the world is uh, this program called Mental Health First Aid, and um, it is a, a program where it's basically like you teach first, just like just like everybody goes to take a first aid class or a CPR class, so that if somebody falls down in front of you, I know how to do CPR. I can go help them, and you can jump right in. It really is about getting people the skills to recognize mental health emergencies and mental health situations when they see them 
and know how to navigate through them. And so getting mental health first aid taught uh, in employers, I've seen that happening a lot. We're doing that a lot in the health plan world. Um, but then also so that so that we can all that's that public health lens that you were talking about. We were talking about so that we all know what to do, because I think part of the stigma, part of the power of, of things that have stigma like racism is that we don't talk about it. We don't talk about race. We don't talk about mental illness. So we don't people don't have a lexicon to be able to communicate about it. But teaching people, when is it a psychiatric emergency? What do you do if somebody starts saying they want to kill themselves? A lot of times people are afraid to bring it up because they're afraid that that's going to cause them to do it. Well, that's a myth. We know that's a myth, but getting that education out there so that people can say, hey, have you thought about harming yourself? Making sure that everybody knows, uh, you know, the National Suicide Hotline number. Every patient that I talk to, I have them program that in their phone. I have programmed in my phone because I get a lot of texts from a lot of people saying, what do I do? And I'm like, give them this number. Um, and I can have, I, I, I'll pull it up so that I can give that number while I'm here on the, on the podcast as well. Um, but that's something that we can do. Just make sure that people are aware of resources um, that are out there um, and be open to the conversation. I think we've, we've all been shut down about a lot of things related to mental health in the past. And once you empower folks with information, it makes them feel more brave and empowered to be able to talk about things and help navigate folks to help. Um, I actually wrote a book just for that reason. It came out right before the pandemic. It was called um, Understanding Mental Illness. And it's a book that said lay, lay language of like, what is this stuff? Because you hear the terms, you hear schizophrenia, you hear bipolar, you hear alcohol, but what's the definition? How do you know? Um, and, and getting people more comfortable with that. I mean, I'm not trying to make everybody into a doctor, um, but I'm just trying to say, if you've got a loved one who's having a situation and you need help to figure out how to navigate them to care, what do you do? We have a very complicated, I call it a non-system. We have a very complicated non-mental health system. Um, and so even figuring out how to access care becomes a challenge. And you gotta take steps to educate yourself in order to do that. But um, so great question. Thank you for that, Jay. Oh, uh, thank you for the answer. And we'll make sure in the show notes to have, um, you know, link to your book and also to the mental health first aid and the national suicide prevention hotline. I wanna make sure you have these resources available. Awesome. Well, we are, um, I, I promised you that we would be done in 45 minutes and I, and I am like right at the, the verge of like passing that. This has been a fabulous conversation. And I would, before we wrap up, um, because I, we've been going back and forth about different things that we would do because uh, it's not necessarily looking for a hook, but if there was a, if there was a question that you wanted to pose back to me, and it can be as loaded a question as you want <laughs> on topic, ask it, because I think that uh, we want to make sure, and whether we include it or not, we'll see how it goes, but we're looking for things that, uh, to re-engage. And then the, site, the other thing is, uh, you gave the name of your book, but if there's any other reading material that you would love to give um, uh, for, um, uh, for some of our listeners, because uh, we, we certainly want to continue to broaden education about health equity in general. Um, I guess my question is, you know, you've been doing a lot of work and a lot of research on this. When do you honestly think, Greg, how many generations, how many years do you think it will take that we're no longer going to be able to have to have this conversation? <laughs> Woo, that's a loaded question. I love it. Um, 
I have faith. I, and I, 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 I started out by saying I have faith that we're going to figure this out because we like, there's going to be a couple of things that are going to happen. First of all, necessity is the mother of invention. And, and the simple fact of the matter is that as the demographics of this country change, um, there's going to be, uh, it's either going to be that health disparities can't exist because we already know that we can't afford them, but we really can't afford it when the black and brown people are the, are the larger mm -hmm. portion of the country. Mm -hmm. And those disparities and the costs that are associated with those disparities become the really the work of the country to be able to solve for them. That's one. Um, I think uh, the the other part is that um, necessity is the mother of invention because the simple fact of the matter is that we are in a different place where people more people are looking into the mirror, more organizations are reflecting on their own complicity in the situation that we're in, and more people are interested in terms of coming up with results. Because again, you look at the research, you look at what's out there, and it's less about, hey, I'm describing, um, it was one of my diet partners used to say, uh, I'm admiring the problem. So there was article upon article about what the problem was. And there are much more people now interested in saying, I don't want to admire the problem. I'm interested mm -hmm. in fixing it. And whether it's um, the generations that immediately follow us, or quite honestly, I think the, it's, it's us as leaders and in respective organizations to, um, you know, to to lead that charge. So I. I'm hopeful, I, I, I'm not, and you know me, I'm not Pollyanna. I am hopeful that it's going to be sooner rather than later. But, um, you know, and, and I and as certainly as I reflect and look at my two sons and I'm like, I hope that, that you guys can talk about what was mm -hmm. in that generation and what is for you and yours. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm hopeful. Great, great. Yeah. This was so much fun. This was awesome. Thank you for the invitation again. It really was such a privilege to be here with you all today. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.